to the Legal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. On today's podcast, we're going into a deeper dive into the intersection among abolition work, the LGBTQ plus community, and mass incarceration. I'm honored to be joined by Jack Keeles, Senior Program Associate with the Reshaping Prosecution Program at the Vera Institute of Justice. Jack Keeles is a proudly queer Barika attorney who is committed to the abolition of the criminal legal system and creating communities and economies based on care and sustainability. Jack works with directly impacted communities to strategize collaboratively to bring about structural change that holds elected officials accountable and shifts resources to directly impacted communities while investing in deepening communities' deep knowledge of what creates safety. They are currently a senior program associate with the Reshaping Prosecution Program, working with elected prosecutors across the country to end mass incarceration, address racial disparities in prosecution, and make their offices more accountable to the communities they serve. Prior to joining Vera in 2020, Jack served as an investigative attorney in the Office of the Inspector General for the New York City Police Department at the NYC Department of Investigation, where they independently oversaw and investigated the policies and practices of the NYPD. Jack specifically participated in and led several investigations into the NYPD, including its gang database, complaints of racial bias, and other non-public investigations that impacted our most marginalized community members. Jack has served on several committees and bar associations during the course of their work, such as the New York City Bar LGBTQ Committee, the NYPD LGBTQ Advisory Board, the Dominican Bar Association, and the Hispanic National Bar Association Region 2. Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it is my absolute pleasure to be talking with you today. Let's start off by talking a little bit more about your work at Vera Institute. Yeah, I like to think of myself as like, this is where I am currently working, but I'm dedicated to a larger project. And so when I say like a larger project, as you kind of graciously kind of alluded to or mentioned in, in the in the introduction, what's really important to me is to make sure that I am living by my values, by my principles, first and foremost. Um, so I see my project or the work that I'm really interested in doing is kind of just supporting communities, figuring out what safety looks like for them and what does liberation look like for them, uh, for us, honestly, for us. And, you know, there are different ways in different places where those conversations um, and those efforts are, are happening. You know, you have community-based organizations all across the country that either provide services and or legal support to people that have to interact with the criminal legal system. Um, But there's also like just groups of people, literally just people who in their circle of friends and or neighborhood and or just like within their neighbors or their families, they may not be integrated into like the capitalist system that that it is that we all have to work into um, around this work. But there are folks that are doing this, like how do we be safe without the cops work? How are we safe, you know, without the criminal legal system sort of work? Because there are so many people who experience harm from that network, um, from that system, but also there's a lot of people who also like just know the fact that it does not create safety. And so they've had out of necessity to, or we've had to out of necessity develop um, our own ways of being amongst each other and still maintaining relationships. And when I say that to people, they're usually so like confused. And then I say something like, do you not have like the creepy uncle in your family? 
Like, do we not, do we not have like those family members that you don't leave alone with the little kids? Like we all have that. That person's not in, in prison and that's a safety issue, right? Like that is a really big safety issue, especially for queers and femmes and, and children, right? And I don't know how many families have just never reported that to police and instead they set up their own boundaries and relationships about how they engage with that person. There might've been an attempt to have a conversation with that person, but you can't make somebody be accountable if they do not want to be. So, you know, if if somebody in those situations, sometimes it's boundaries, sometimes it's, he's not coming here, you know, or that person is not allowed in my house or that person is not allowed in certain crowds or I'll only interact with that person if it is in public. Like we make these decisions and these in our communities make these decisions all the time because we know the harm and the and how trying to put somebody in jail or calling the cops on somebody really can cause a lot more harm than it ever does anyone any good. And if any case, you know, it it does lead to death. And that's a reality. That's and that's a bigger reality for the communities that are dealing with it. And that reality is not felt the same way amongst all populations and amongst everyone who does criminal justice reform work. Um, And I I think that that just needs to be like said explicitly that like there are some people who do criminal justice reform work who are people that are directly impacted by these issues. But we also have to recognize that the nonprofit industrial complex as a whole allows for people who never experienced the sort of don't who don't come from a home where they're being policed and monitored and stuff like that the way that black and brown communities are and they can just like come into a nonprofit and you know work on the thing that they want to work on without having the perspective and experience to know that expansion and social workers and police departments and social workers and prosecutors offices is not the answer. (laughs) A lot to unpack there. I think it might be helpful before we go too much further to kind of get everyone on the same framework in terms of language. Mm. So I heard you using a few terms that I know there's been some inconsistencies on. So could you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by when you say criminal legal system instead of criminal justice system, or I've also heard alternatively so-called criminal justice system. So could you kind of take us through a few of those vocab terms before we dive in too much further? Yeah, for sure. The reason why I leave out the word justice is because it's just not a just system. Um, Justice only exists amongst like community and inside relationships. So, you know, the criminal legal system does not deliver justice. It just exists for the purposes of controlling and exploiting um, black and brown bodies. And so as an extension of slavery, and so I'll call it either a so-called justice system because I'm, you know, making a joke at the fact that it's just not justice, but people like to call it that. And I'll call it the legal system because it is a legal system Uh, What people need to understand is that the law is just also another tool of white supremacy. So, you know, it's, it's a legal system. It's, that's as far as I, as I like to call it. And it's criminal because they called it that. The system has decided to define what a criminal is, that those are all state terms and state definitions. The concept of crime is a tool of white supremacy as opposed to, because, yeah, and maybe we can get into that, but the definition of crime is is a legal definition. We can certainly circle back to that. Well, thank you for reminding us that the issue of community safety is all year round. This is not just an issue of police presence at Pride, yes, no, what does that mean? Thinking alongside of the equal weight that we're giving to the conversation of, you know, should the large corporations have floats at Pride? This is really a much larger issue and this is a day-to-day issue. Your comparison that you made about 
organizing within our own communities to keep everyone safe kind of reminds me of the argument that do you have single gender restrooms in your own home? Do you have more than one gender of person who lives in your home? Why do we expect this in public, right? Like what, why we're able to navigate multiple genders using the same bathroom at home. Why is this such an issue in public? We're able to navigate those spaces safely for ourselves. It's interesting the way in which you're making that connection to me when we're thinking about safety, because that whole argument kind of reveals the whole purpose of the criminal legal system, right? Or the whole purpose of one of the tenets of white supremacy is that we don't want folks to be able to empathize and be in, and, and have contact with like certain types of people and things. And so the, so, I'm just taking a pause because there's so many things that come up for me when I think about all the issues around the bathroom bills. On the one hand, I think that we need to talk about the general issue of why public restrooms, accessible public safe restrooms as a general matter are very important in a society. Um, that we currently have that has the extreme homelessness that it has. And then when we think about the number of queer kids that are out there in New York City that are Black and brown kids, 40% of um, children who go through foster care and or and then the juvenile justice system, 40% of them are queer. And they're Black and brown queer kids. There are, there are babies right? Um, And so it's like, yes, we can, we can be talking about what is, what is the bathroom situation really about? It's anti-poverty. It's anti, it's (laughs) anti-Black. We've had segregation before. And it's also, but folks are, are, are trying to weaponize it and use it a different way because the, the, way in which, the way in which folks are responding is weaponizing this idea of safety. When white people talk about safety, they're talking about security. They're not talking about safety. And this is something that Miriam Kaba, I think, wrote about um, in her book, We Do This So We Free Us, which I highly recommend anybody to read, everyone to read, because I think it'll be helpful to then think, reflect on yourself and like what role you want to play. But something that she talks about is like, and something that I, that I definitely see in my work is that the people who tend to weaponize the need, oh, what about safety? You know, I'm concerned about, you know, the, I'm concerned about the, the shootings are really scary and like all of these things, but they're not the ones who are, living in those neighborhoods and experiencing it, when people call for more policing, when people call for more presence on the streets, it's so that they feel safe. But that doesn't mean that they are safe. And that's why, like, again, something that Miriam Kaba really writes about is, like, abolition doesn't care about your feelings. This, is, this isn't about trying to accommodate somebody's own emotional security and, like, their inability to deal with their own uncomfortability with seeing, you know, different kinds of people being exposed to different kinds of people because they don't want those people to exist and seeing them exist makes them reflect on their own selves, you know, like, and this is just like, you know, the sort of hostility as a non-binary, like trans brown person, like it is very clear that we make you know, people uncomfortable, but it's because they don't understand our power, honestly, or they know that we're powerful. They know that we have something special and, and that's just a fact. So something in the bio that you had mentioned is that I'm Boricua, right? So like I'm Puerto Rican, I'm actually Puerto Rican and Italian, but I, we can have that conversation about identity and all those things um, another day. It's really complicated, especially just looking at it through the imperialist project of 
what is happening in Puerto Rico. Like there's a reason why they want us to mix up with other people. It's a form of genocide. But, you know, my my own story is that my own family is descended from Taino people, as it is true for many Puerto Ricans. And the Taino people was a matriarchal society where we everything was kind of done through the, the mother in the family. And I saw that even in my own grandmother um, and the ways in which she related to me and with me. But there were also queer people and there were trans people in our communities. And they were, they tended to be the spiritual leaders and the ones that were targeted first by the Spanish conquistadores. And that's true in the United, in United States on Turtle Island as well. Like in native communities, the people who are on the front lines doing the work are the femmes and the queers. Like that is, that is just how it is. Not to say that like the cis men don't have a role to play, I'm just talking about, (laughs) I'm just talking about us um, because even in my own life, you see how that ends up happening. You know, like I I tend to be the one in my own queer family and queer circles that's helping people work through their conflicts and communicate and deal with their emotions. Like these are real things because we live outside the binary and that gives us a, a larger perspective and people who benefit from power, people who are in power, benefit from power, they're going to be hostile to us. You feel it. You feel it when people become uncomfortable with you and they can, it just like, you know, I dated this woman one time whose parents were like Trumpers and she was white and her parents were like white Trumpers or whatever. Her dad was like biracial Puerto Rican (laughs) and a Latino for Trump type situation. It was horrible. And they were very hostile to me, openly saying the N-word in my presence, always wanting to challenge my perspectives and views. And this was like the 10 years ago me. This was early 20s me. So I wasn't even as equipped, but they knew that I got into law school and that I was going to be going to law school. And so it was like, who are you? Like going to law school. Meanwhile, their daughter wasn't doing shit. Like that was just the reality of the relationship I was in. So the bat, just to circle back to the bathrooms, like the bathrooms are their inability to cope with the fact that we exist. It's classist, it's racist because they don't want accessible public bath. Like I, I care about the public bathrooms. I, I was living in Jackson Heights for a while in New York city. Like people deserve clean public bathrooms. And also for me, as somebody who utilizes the bathroom all the time, like I noticed bars, especially during COVID, were not letting people come in to use the bathroom. Like there are other women and I didn't notice there, there are like women and other people who like, I don't know what it is, but I feel like we always have to use the bathroom. (laughs) We always have to be that. Like my friends and I, like you can tell where the good, that's something that I think about. Like, where are the accessible clean bathrooms? For us to use because we have to deal with all sorts of things and it's and it's a medical problem it's a medical issue i'll just stop there before getting too personal <laughs> there are never enough clean accessible bathrooms in new york city regardless of gender so let's circle back you had spoke earlier about the definitions of crimes being a tool of white supremacy i don't want to forget that point i'd love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on that absolutely There is a difference between crime and harm. And I think that that is really important for people to understand. People experience harm all the time, but it's not criminalized, right? So wage theft is the easiest example. Wage theft is not a crime, but yet it happens to everyone, especially like, you know, our working class folk, like that's, that's what happens. That's what generates profit. It's wage theft, but that's not criminalized. If anything, it's supported, but what is criminalized or has been criminalized is if you can't afford a subway, like swipe or our, our churros, you know, our churros ladies, like it's a crime to exist in a certain space. You know, if you pay attention, a lot of things, there's so many contradictions that are worth exploiting about the ways in which crimes are defined, are 
enforced are treated if you're convicted and then sentenced, that there are so many inconsistencies that the argument around safety just doesn't make sense. If you look at the definition of a violent felony, it is inconsistent across the entire country. Nobody can agree as to what is a violent felony or not. Like every state have their own definitions of violent felonies. And yet certain things like rape and sexual abuse are not considered violent felonies in some states and considered violent felonies in others. So if, if sexual abuse is not considered violent as just a base matter, then what is the point of the label of violence? It's enhancements. Anybody who gets a violent felony is facing enhancements. It's enhancements to help further entrench. It's a tool. Violent felony statutes are a tool because it helps coerce harsher pleas. You know, I was a prosecutor in the Brooklyn DA's office. If somebody is charged with a violent felony, the last thing that they want on their criminal record is a violent felony. Because then you're going to be looking at actual incarceration time and it confounds over time. So when we look at what is a crime, existing in space is a crime. What spaces are inaccessible subways for people for the poor right private property right you have trespass statutes you have you have statutes about criminal mischief criminal mischief meaning you're causing damage to a thing i'm sorry but like if i break a thing of yours like should i be going to should i be facing a class a misdemeanor that has a, a punishment of up to one year in jail like that doesn't make any sense there are so many statutes that exist for the sake of protecting property interests and internal borders, essentially, to keep certain classes of people just under just enough control so that they can exploit them. They can exploit them to help pay for the apparatus to give jobs. So Ruth Wilson Gilmore, she talks about this, that the, the, the whole point of the criminal legal system is to extract time, extract time from black and brown communities. And when I say that, think about all the resources that are put in to make an arrest. And I'll take the most basic, most non-controversial sort of arrest or process. Somebody breaks something, criminal mischief, you call the police, Eventually, maybe depending on the neighborhood, whether they come or not, let's just say the person ends up getting arrested. Maybe they were right there. They saw the whole thing. Get arrested. They have to physically take you into the precinct. They fingerprint you. They process paperwork. You're held at the precinct for hours. Now, in New York City, you have up to 24 hours. So this person, yes, they could get a desk appearance ticket and probably, possibly might, depending on how the police feel about it because it's in their discretion. A desk appearance ticket means that they'll go to the precinct, do some paperwork, do some like fingerprinting, and then they release the person. So then they can go home. That process only takes a few hours, depending on how the police officer feels. They also have the discretion to put you through live. And that that in like system speak means that you're going to be staying possibly overnight. You're going to be staying for 24 hours, and then you're going to see a judge to be arraigned. That one process alone, you have multiple officers who have to watch you when you're in the precinct. You have all the paperwork that has to be processed. You have the clerks and the DAs and the people in the DA's office that have to receive all of that information. You have to have a court, the courtroom with a judge and, and the stenographer, the clerks, the physical files. You have to have a court staff. You have to have an entire apparatus just to process the physical body of one person, and it's more than one person, but like the physical body of black and brown people to impose a punishment on them and to put them into surveillance system. Because even if you are still just charged with the crime, you are being surveilled now. You have an open criminal case, something were to happen where you're gonna get arrested again, you're getting put through again, and you're gonna be facing bail. You have an open case, which means that you possibly are going to be suspended at work. You are now starting to experience the consequences of the system. All that stuff costs funding. 
it costs money. The city spends money to do these things. And it's like, for what? It is not a cost efficient system. Why do we do it? Because of the time. That processing of the person's physical body needs jobs in order for it to happen. And the jobs are disproportionately, and we say, you know, and, and I know that New York City, there's a lot more nuance in terms of like what the employment looks like. I would say that even in New York City, part of the bribe for black and brown law enforcement is the fact that there are very few options for black and brown people that come out of certain communities that don't, you know, have access to a college degree or maybe have limited access to education or then able to get at least a job in law enforcement that gives enough benefits to sustain their families. Like there's a whole nuanced conversation about how black and brown communities are coerced into uplifting this and supporting the system. But that's the point. There's an entire system dedicated just and, and able to benefit by creating jobs for certain classes of people at the expense of others. And that is racial capitalism. That is white supremacy capitalism because these folks are unionized. How many different, we have parole union, correction officer unions, we have police unions, we have sergeant unions, we have detective unions, we have lieutenant unions, we have you know the, the unions for the clerks in the offices. The, you know, like all, all of their labor interests are even like doubly, triply protected and depending on the power distribution within that system. So this is not about safety because if we cared about safety, we would have clean, public, accessible bathrooms that have showers. We would have housing. We would have well-funded schools because that is what creates safety. We wouldn't have cops on certain, every corner of certain communities calling it neighborhood policing when it's really just an enhanced occupation of black and brown communities who came to New York City as refugees. The Puerto Rican communities that exist in New York City fled Puerto Rico because of things like political repression, because of climate change, because, because you know, the United States just continues to exploit us and not give good employment opportunities because it is so expensive to live there because of the Jones Act. It costs just as much in Puerto Rico to get basic things like milk and eggs as it is in New York City. Like <laughs> the cost of living is insane. I really challenge people to think about and reflect on when have they actually been safe? And as opposed to focusing on their feelings of safety, because these are the feelings of safety that white supremacy wants to teach us is that of security. Because safety exists in relationships. Safety exists when we have trust. Safety exists when we have mutual understanding and healthy boundaries and healthy communication, not when you can just call the police to respond to something that even if it's an emergency, it's still going to happen. They're showing up late. They're not doing, there is no safety that's created. From what I'm hearing, it sounds like safety is almost being used as a dog whistle for security, for property and security for systems rather than security of people. Is that a fair recap? Yeah. Yeah. I like the way you put that. So there's a lot of different roads to potentially travel to think about increasing safety, right? I know we haven't even touched on restorative justice yet. Could you kind of take us through a few pieces that you're working on specifically to increase safety? Safety needs to start with internal work. To be nonviolent, you have to practice nonviolence, and that includes in your language and the way in which you engage with yourself. So in the organizing world, this is also sometimes called like the shadow work. It's the internal work that you do because in order to be safe for others, you have to be safe for yourself. So I would start there. How do you talk to yourself? How are you responding to situations? Are you getting the resilience and care you know, that you need so that you're not taking things personal? Your internal shame is being worked on. Because one of the things, so Danielle Sered is, 
um, the executive director of Common Justice. She, uh, when I was at the Brooklyn DA's office, there was a program about restorative justice where folks would get diverted for certain violent felonies, including stabbings and shootings. They would get diverted and do a restorative justice program. Um, I'm not gonna give my opinion about all of that, but that's the facts. <laughs> um, but they, they put those cases through a restorative justice process, obviously with the consent of the victim and all those things. And, and one of the things um, that she has written about, because she wrote a book about those experiences that I really do encourage people to read, because I think people really need to have a closer and deeper understanding of what is harm why and why does it occur. And one of the biggest drivers um, of crime that are of violence that she, she identifies four main drivers of violence. One is shame. Two is lack of access to resources. Three, previous exposure to uh, violence. And isolation is number four. So that's why I say we have to work on the parts that we work on, our own internalized shame. Because people cause harm uh, when they feel shame. And that's definitely my experience in some of the sort of even violent cases that I handled at the Brooklyn DA's office. I've had cases where defendants are the ones that call 911 for the partner that they had just beaten. They're doing that because of shame. And I've listened to their voices. I've listened to Riker's calls. I've met with, when I was in the Brooklyn DA's office, I worked with domestic violence um, specifically specifically domestic violence in the LGBTQ community. I actually requested to do those cases because one, I didn't want our people to be going to jail. Um, just like I didn't want anybody going to jail, but I thought that I had you know, the best argument to be able to show why it's just so fucking dangerous for queer people to be, in, be incarcerated along with every, everyone else, obviously. So yeah, the, what you do is, what we have to do is we have to address shame, our own internal shame. We really do have to do that internal work of confronting our own pain that we experienced in our lives because it is really harmful to externalize that because otherwise that's what you're doing. You're going to externalize that into other relationships. You're going to perceive situations in a way that's going to make you look less than, make you feel less than. It's good. And that's kind of what builds up the hostility, builds up resentment. I'm sure we've all seen these in our friendships. I don't know. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm that, <laughs> I'm the envy trans, I don't know, person in my like group of friends and people that constantly helping to mediate conflict. So I, I feel like I see this a lot of like the internalized shame really causing um, people to interpret situations in ways that others didn't mean for it to come off that way. Like how often does that happen, right? Two, I think that we have to deepen our relationships with others. Cause as I mentioned, like safety comes out of relationships, comes out of deepening relationships. So the deepening relationships and understanding that accountability is not the same as punishment. When we feel feelings of retribution that we want to cause harm to others, regardless of how justified you might feel, it's in those times when you feel actually justified, actually, that you should really do some more internal reflection. But retribution is not healing. People are causing harm because they are unhealed. And there's a lot of stuff that could be going on in their lives. And it's all individualized. So I think we have to be able to engage with others, but we also need to be able to hold others accountable. When I think about vengeance versus justice, I think about Batman. Batman is vengeance. Batman is not healed. Spider-Man is demonstrating much more healing despite the family tragedy and is more akin to justice, let's say. Ooh, I have a different analysis of Spider-Man. Oh, do you have a I feel like he has. I feel like he has some serious white savior situations going on. I think it's the white saviorism that ends up causing the harm. And I see this a lot in like the domestic violence world where you have people who are stepping in to try to make decisions about others in their lives and what they need or what should happen as opposed to like, working with the people who are dealing with the consequences and finding out from them, what is it that you need? So that, that was, I have, I probably don't know Spider-Man as well as you do. Obviously I've only seen it once, but 
just from watching it that one time, that was kind of how I felt like he was treating it. He wasn't, he wasn't listening to MJ. He, he was really just trying to do everything himself. And that's why he does cause a bunch of mess and it's someone else that has to come in and fix it for him. And he reluctantly accepts it because he had like no choice. Mm. So I kind of felt like that was just like, again, the black woman, like saving the day sort of thing and saving like white people from themselves. That's kind of it, which is like, you know, it's a, it's a pattern. Certainly. But I'll watch um, it again. I will watch it again if, if you want to have a deeper conversation. About it. And I'm definitely thinking more of the Saturday morning cartoon version rather than mm. the buckets and buckets of movie reboots and not mm. listening to men, not listening to women is just a problem throughout for all of the franchises. So just setting that piece aside. That's a good point. Problematic I, in all of the universes. Yeah. So I do want to finish my point about like what you can do because it leads to like, yeah. So, so we have to like be willing to have difficult conversations and you have to be willing to be uncomfortable because it's only when you're uncomfortable that you're going to have a moment of growth. Like we can't just always just have everything exactly the way we want it to be so that we can just feel safe and comfortable at all, like, or secure and comfortable at all times. Our views can't go unchallenged. We have to be willing to grow and figure out and find out how our actions impacted others and wanting to be responsive to the way in which our actions impact others without taking it personal and thinking that therefore that person intended to make you feel like shit, for example. Like, no, oftentimes people don't intend the results of their action that can cause harm or There's a lot more stuff going on in the back of their minds that requires deeper education. So, you know, a lot of times, and we've seen this, like there are people who have certain, have been growing up in a certain background and they might be doing or saying some fucked up things. And in how many friend groups do we have like this person that, you know, might've, that happens to me. I grew up in the suburbs. I never had to deal with scarcity and my friends. I have friends and loved ones who have. And so there has been times where I say like, really, I might've said like an ignorant classes thing, having no idea that it was related to that experience. And a friend will be like, Jack, that is not my experience. Don't you recognize X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. That's a moment of growth for me. You have to accept that. We have to accept that. And I, I also in terms of like systemically, what do we need to do? I think we need reparations. We need, and real like reparations. And I don't care how controversial that sounds. We need to care about climate change. We need healthier spaces to live in. Um, Our environments need to be healthier. You know, how many times like, are we concerned about air pollution in New York City? We just found out our drinking water is unsafe. I mean, not our drinking water, rainwater. We can't drink our rainwater anywhere in the world or something because of the horrible chemicals, because of climate change. Well, not because of climate change, because corporations are deciding to pollute. Corporations in the United States military are deciding to like, you know, use whatever fossil fuels or use whatever sources of energy they want to use for the sake of their imperialist interests at the expense of all of us. And at the expense mostly of, you know, the global south, if we're going to be honest about that. So, you know, this is, this is about recreating and deconstructing our environment and reconstructing it um, and building up the environment that we need that has the resources for people to not be hungry, for people to be housed, for people to live, you know, in, in communities where people can collectively discuss and decide how they maybe want to use those resources, how they want to support each other. It is absolutely outrageous that we don't have universal health care in this country. It's absolutely outrageous that, you know, people have to pay for therapy. I just switched insurances. Now I'm going to have to pay out of pocket for therapy because my therapist doesn't, doesn't accept my insurance plan. Like, this is just ridiculous. We need all of those things. And then we, and Then when it comes to interpersonal conflicts and interpersonal safety, like I'm not saying that we're going to get to a utopia where harm won't occur. I don't think anybody is saying that as long as we're humans, we're always going to have conflict 
there's always going to be harm, but we have to have safer ways of dealing with it. And I think that's where people try to jump to restorative justice, but I really encourage folks to think a little bit more broadly because it doesn't have to be systemic responses. You can do this within your own friend groups and within your own communities, within your own families. You know, maybe you have a family member who, who's in a really toxic relationship. You got your friend. Everybody's got that friend that's in a really toxic relationship that keeps going back to an ex and they're probably not telling us the whole story. We don't know if they, you know, if they've thrown hands or not. It's very possible. Um, sometimes they talk about them. Sometimes they don't. You know, like everyone's got that friend. How can we support that person? What are things that could be done to support that person? And if, if you're having a hard time showing up to be there in a non-judgmental way, then like, is there any work that you can do on yourself to think about ways in which you want to show up for somebody? Are there group ways of handling this? You know, when within my own family, my father grew up in Bushwick and survived the war on drugs. And I say survived because he's lost many, many people, not only siblings, but also close best friends that he grew up with. But something that kind of happens in, happened in my family that I'm sure happens in many other families is that there have been decisions that had to be made about who's going to raise children, where are those children going to live, who's going to support those children, who has the means to support those children, because, you know, if there's my, and my father had lost like a sibling, you know, like these are community decisions, family, these were family decisions that were made. You know, my grandparents got involved because it was there, you know, like these things are talked about. And if communities have the support that they need, some of these decisions that might have to be made could be less traumatic and difficult on the kids because that stuff those sort of decisions, yes, you know, like it's hard to make decisions like that and communities deserve to be supported and have more options, I think. I know I'm digressing, but I'm just saying that we've been developing and working on our own ways of being safe and how to be safe, but yet there's not any investment in that. And I, and I think, and I'll close this like segment with this also, because it's something that I care a lot about, especially when we think about the war on drugs, especially when we think about the criminalization of black and brown queer people through the AIDS crisis. Like this all happened at the same time as the AIDS crisis. So my own family also was very strongly hit by the AIDS crisis at the time. You know, ACT UP, was, it was really dope. ACT UP was pretty it's very nuanced. I know I'm sure that anybody who's listening to this podcast has their own knowledge history or relationship with the ACT UP movement. But something that stood out to me that's really important is that it did include members, and I've met elders from that engaged in this advocacy while I was at the Brooklyn DA's office, because sometimes they I ran into community members. Um, who are still impacted and dealing with the system, but were also a part of ACT UP at that time because they were dealing with drug usage. They were dealing with criminalization. You know, there are different ways in which there's a lot of, there's a lot of separation and difference in the queer community. You know, black and brown queer people are not dealing with the same shit as, as the white queers. Um, and this is just something that I will openly talk about with anybody. Um, <laughs> it might be controversial, but like maybe it's something important for people to just recognize as a normal thing. There is separation in our community and that separation is there because we haven't gotten the, all the support that we needed. Um, but I do think ACT UP is a good example of the sort of support that white gays could provide because it's about making resources available. It's about using your positionality um, to benefit others. So they were the ones that were able to throw the ashes on the front lawn of the White House, right? They were the ones that were able to scream and curse and do say all that crazy shit that Larry used to say, resting power, like, you know, he used to say the crazy shit that he said because he's white, he's rich, he's a cis man. You know, like there's a reason why he was so he could be so badass because when Marsha did that shit or when others, you know, Sylvia did that shit, like it was not respected. 
was not heard and they had to deal with a lot more stuff. But I say, my, I had an uncle who was HIV positive and contracted, contracted HIV during the drug wars. And I say the drug wars, cause it really was a war on like my community, our communities. And something that came out of that that he he contracted AIDS because of needle because of needles they were sharing needles um, so there this was before the world of the needle exchanges so we got needle exchanges now because of this sort of advocacy but also because of the lives that were lost because of needles multiple fam like that's it's interesting my dad his story is that like he lost so many people because they all shared needles together. And um, it's, it's a serious issue. But my uncle, even though he, he was sharing needles, he survived that shit because he was a survivor to a certain extent. <laughs> but he was hooked on heroin. And one of the things that he did is that he detoxed himself off heroin. Wow. Right? That's incredible. And there, but that's not uncommon. There are people, there are elders, black and brown elders. I've met them who survived the war on drugs, losing others in, as well, who were hooked on heroin and detoxed themselves off of heroin. I remember going to Puerto Rico and being with my grandmother and she showed me the maca, the hammock, that he would like take naps and rest in, in her house in the mountains in Puerto Rico. He, she told me that like he used to come here, she showed me his room and his space and used to go there and rest. And my dad like had told me that he had done that many times, but like that knowledge exists in our communities, but why are there so many methadone clinics? Or, you know, and it's not so much methadone anymore. It's like Suboxone and stuff too. Like, why are people just on medication? Where's the weaning? Where's the weaning off? You know, like our communities deserve to be able to have full control of their lives. And that's why I say, if it was about safety, it would be about public health. It would be about supporting folks with mental health challenges. It would be having a society where we have the healthcare that we need for everyone, for trans people, for people who get pregnant, for women in a way that is not so horribly exploitative and like gross. Cause there's so, there's so much stuff about even women's health. that's like, we don't know about, let alone, you know, how intersex people are treated and how, you know, trans folks are treated in our lack of healthcare. Like that would be an obvious thing to provide if we cared about safety and it, it doesn't exist. So you've talked a lot about the internal work that you can do, and I wish more of these were skills that were taught in law school. Can you tell us a little bit more about what attorneys can do to get involved if this isn't their day-to-day nine-to-five? Maybe they only have a few minutes on the weekend to be online or engage with elected officials. Can you kind of give us some bite-sized action items or tips, so to speak, in terms of how other attorneys can get involved for the fight for safety? Creating safety is a long-term project in communities. Um, And I think folks have to recognize that this stuff is long-term and to not want to see or, you know, sacrifice values. So the first thing that attorneys can do is think about themselves and think about what are the values that are important to you and reflect on what am I doing in my life to align with these values. So I think that's the first, like the internal work to sit with. In my job, I actually have a set of values that guide my work that my supervisors are fully aware of. They know my boundaries and they know that I will not do certain things. Um, I won't write policies, for example, that justify incarceration or surveillance for anyone. You know, there are lines that I won't cross. So I think that that's really important. But I understand that everyone also has to eat and we have to engage with capitalism. But I strongly encourage, um, there's long-term and short-term things that you can do. The long-term, I strongly encourage folks to divest from the capitalist system. I strongly encourage folks to maximize 
their ability to provide free labor and support to their community members, either through supporting mutual aid networks. There's a lot, there was like this boon of like mutual aid networks all across the city during COVID because people were hungry. And now that there's, for some folks, seems to be less of a crisis, some of these mutual aid networks are taking a hit. Um, So supporting your local community fridge, supporting your local mutual aid office, um, they're all over the city. There's one in Astoria, there's stuff in like South Brooklyn, like there are mutual aids and and community fridges everywhere. And and being able to eat and and not be hungry is a safety thing because so many people get hangry and that's like a real thing. I also think like, if you're somebody who has access to certain like privileges, you have a platform. I, I, I really encourage like reflecting on the ways in which you can use your access, use your privilege to support or amplify the needs or the advocacy of grassroots organizations and people who are doing some of the active work on the ground. And that could exist. And I would encourage folks to think outside of the nonprofit world, outside of the capitalist world in thinking about that. And I encourage that this be done in a way that is consistent with who you are. And because if you don't have a personal connection, you know, it's just charity. People don't, we don't want charity. We want investment, but the investment actually has a lifetime of reward if you're doing it from a space that is sustainable, that is connected to the things that you care a lot about. Um, So I encourage first starting with the internal reflections and thinkings before just jumping into doing something else. Um, or jumping into a thing or signing up for a thing and then not being able to follow through because that's the sustainability is is the thing that we need to center. Thank you so much for sharing your personal family history with us today, for telling us about your work, for really motivating and engaging us. So thank you again, Jack, so much for joining us on the podcast today. And as always, I want to thank our listeners as well. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. No, this was great. I'm happy to be here for the conversation.